Shri Gurubhyo Namaha. The topic I am uh, speaking today is a, is a topic which is new to me as well. Uh, my area of research is not a geopolitics per se. My area of research is not defense or strategic affairs. So uh, if uh, anybody in those fields working and they find something in the uh, name in my uh, presentation, I need to, I want to uh, offer apology at the beginning itself. Um, my area of research is basically into Hindu traditions, Hindu texts, uh, the Indian knowledge systems. And it is from this perspective uh, that I will be speaking. And it is a very important point, I think, uh, um, from a very long-term perspective. Uh, the, the, the title, uh, as you can read, is India must embrace dharmic expansionism as a geopolitical goal. And I will shortly be explaining what I mean by this, what is the vision that I am speaking of. And this is a vision uh, that is something uh, which is um, which is this Hindu civilizational vision. What I am basically presenting is uh, a civilization vision of India itself that, uh, that we have somewhere down the line lost it uh, due to a, a long period of... Uh, uh, innovations followed by colonialism and breakdown of our education system and uh, the uh, even post independence the kind of narrative you know uh, the gandhian nehruvian and the secularism that we have adopted it has kind of made us uh, forget uh, what our civilizational goals was and how our ancestors uh, spoke about these the, the, the larger geopolitical issues. So, with this very brief background, I in the very first uh, slide I want to uh, uh, deal with some of the common things uh, that we we have kind of uh, taken for granted. You know, I remember when uh, when I was in school, uh, we were taught these things. You know. Uh, sometimes the teachers used to teach it, it may or may not have been in textbooks, but, but it, this is a narrative which is repeatedly uh, created uh, to all of us, you know, that uh, India is a peace-loving country which never waged war, which never invaded anyone, and, 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 and uh, only sometimes in defense we were forced to take up arms, otherwise there was all the hunky and dory, we were uh, very ahimsavadis. And uh, the second uh, such narrative, you know, that the stories that Indians tell themselves, well, that is the title I have given, because we tell this to our kids. This was, we were told this when we were kids. And, and, and you know, by repeat again and again, we kind of believe that these are true. The other, uh, another such story is that, uh, you know, when you read the, these other textbooks, so where it starts with... Uh, Indus Valley Civilization, then, then the Mauryan Empire, then the Gupta Empire, Harshavardhana, and then suddenly it starts with Chauhans uh, um, and then the Delhi Sultanate, Mughal uh, era, etc. As if there was some kind of uh, smooth transition, as if uh, the Hindu civilization uh, submitted before the Islamic hordes, uh, just like that, you know. Uh, uh, as if we were weak civilization, a disunited civilization without a civilization vision. So this is the kind of 
narrative that is built and we are also told that islamic rule is beautiful great and they did great many things this that and in the whole narrative the truth is somehow baffled uh, another such uh, story we tell us is gandhi and ahimsa vannas our freedom it was uh, satyagraha the ahimsa uh, the sacrifice with uh, this this gandhian notion of ahimsa and i'm very specific in that way i'm using these terms because see ahimsa is a concept which is very prevalent in indian hindu text especially in mahabharata and as well as dharma shastra but uh, the kind of ahimsa uh, that we are celebrating today or at least it is drilled into our heads is the gandhian variety the variety that uh, mahatma gandhi uh, has a profound and and this is today as posited as a highest moral and spiritual ideal that india had ever achieved and can ever achieve in future and the corollary of this is the notion that a war is morally bad and uh, uh, pacifism is the way forward i remember uh, reading somewhere that after independence uh, uh, first prime minister jawaharlal nehru did not even want to have a very big or strong army kept because he said we are peace loving nation and it was this kind of misleading notions that led to the 1962 fiasco you know wherein we lost so many territories to china and then of course the big elephant in the room this big story that india was a uh, peace loving nation that uh, propounded the world vision of vasudeva kutumbakam and india's role in this world is vishwaguru now we here uh, even our prime ministers today even our narendra modi ji has spoken about how india should aim to become a vishwaguru all uh, many of the politicians have repeatedly spoken about how vasudeva kutumbakam is our civilizational goal but there are serious problems with these stories the problem is that these are not entirely true in fact many of them are entirely false consider this the first point uh, we spoke about is that india never invaded anyone india never waged a war i mean this is this is a narrative which has been somehow drilled into us i don't know i cannot pinpoint the source where we got it i mean i i have so many people have spoken to they all believe this but check the facts the fact is india was of course not a single political entity before but each of the political entity the kingdoms which were there they were always waging one or the other wars with each other they were was always they were attempting to expand their own kingdom uh, uh, i come from mysore and uh, our uh, it is a royal city we have a royal heritage the rulers of mysore are the wadayars but funnily in the textbooks that i studied when i was in school uh, some 15 uh, 20 years back it hardly mentioned anything about the wadayars and whatever was mentioned was something like that portraying them as incompetent people and this was the also portrayed in this famous uh, uh, although historically completely inaccurate 
serial this uh, the sword of tipu sultan which was made to glorify tipu sultan and you uh, know show him as some kind of savior of india uh, ignoring all the atrocities committed against the hindus the what they sh- the, the serial showed was that mysore kings were uh, indulging in all kinds of pleasures and ignored their kingdom they were not competent but the history the fact is that they were very good kings they did lot of things for the mysore they, they did lot of things for their kingdom they not only worked in the development field etc but more importantly they also waged wars with their neighboring kingdom and in the in and and we have a, a bigger evidence for how indian kings went out of their way to not just expand their kingdom in india but also uh, in in today's geographical boundary of india but also uh, outside of it one of the big uh, best example is how rajendra chola one in uh, 1025 ce he led a very successful naval expedition against southeast asia at that time the southeast asia was ruled by the shri vijaya empire it was also a hindu buddhist empire and and the uh, rajendra chola waged this war a naval expedition uh, to take control of the waters the malakkan strait and all these people to take control of the sea uh, trade and it was a fantastic it was a overwhelming victory for the cholas so much so that the shri vijaya empire deteriorated after their defeat at the hands of the cholas it it kind of uh, did a death blow to the shri vijaya is this not an evidence something very substantial evidence which says that the the vision the kshatriya vision because basically geopolitics is a topic that comes under the kshatriya uh, forte in the hindu vision you know the hindu framework wherein we divide the society into four varnas brahmana kshatriya vaishya shudra it is the kshatriya duty is this look after the geopolitical interest and throughout indian history all the indian kingdoms all the indian kings the the rulers they have this expansionist uh, vision for uh, their kingdom for their rule you know and then the question you know the second point about hindu kings uh, you know did not um, you know they submitted against the islamic invaders just like that meekly which is of course the greatest uh, uh, is most unfair thing that is greatest blow to hindu pride hindu identity that is done through our textbook education the fact is as sitaram goel ji says in his book heroic hindu resistance to muslim invaders hindu kings fought hard they fought so hard that they prevented the uh, islamic invasion for 500 years you know the first attempts to invade india happened around in 7th 8th century uh, towards the late 8th century i think and um, it was they were repeatedly defeated and and the, the, they were able to capture delhi only in 13th century you know after this battle of taran uh, wherein prithviraj chauhan lost and even after that we kept 
fighting we kept uh, the resistance so we were never we never lacked courage we never lacked honor we never lacked the kshatriyas it is only today that we are told that war is bad we are told that uh, uh, having a kshatriya spirit is bad you know so during the british times what they did was uh, all those communities which posed a uh, a, a martial challenge to the british rule they were branded as criminal caste and they were successively disenfranchised they were successively uh, removed the like you remove a thorn they were removed uh, from the british sphere and that is where the gun laws the control laws in india that they come from coming to gandhi and ahimsa uh, it is now i think i don't need to dwell much it is now more or less established that uh the reason british left india was not because of any big freedom movement the, the last uh, movement to ask for freedom was in 1942 but uh, after that nothing happened it was basically because the british uh, lost the second world war and the cost of maintaining the empire was simply huge in the aftermath of the loss that they they were kind of bankrupt they simply could not retain the empire and and plus when this naval rebellion happened you know when they tried in ina soldiers and uh, there was a rebellion in the uh, british indian navy from the indian soldiers they simply realized that they cannot maintain uh, this empire and they withdrew this not through gandhi and ahimsa by any stretch of imagination coming to the issue of war is morally bad in an absolute sense and i will be speaking about this more in uh, and uh, presentation this is something an idea which is alien to civilization hindu civilization this i will be showing soon and vasudeva um, kutumbakam this is the most funny thing uh, this is this is a this was never a geopolitical goal this is a basically a spiritual goal which have been it's okay to apply take up a spiritual goal and apply in geopolitics but problem arises when you misapply in geopolitics the way it is today applied is completely misapplication they are uh, they are taking a spiritual goal without care for context and copy pasting it into geopolitics right and uh, this is a very utopian vision when it applies to geopolitics and makes zero sense so with this very quick background to the kind of narratives that is there i want to uh, take a more uh, substantial uh, approach to what is the if vasudeva uh, kutumbakam gandhi and ahimsa these are not the uh, ideal for uh, hindu civilization hindu for geopolitics what it is but before going there i want to quickly uh, refer to this notion of vishwaguru you know uh, we keep hearing this even including our current prime minister has made repeated reference that india is a vishwaguru we need to strive to become a vishwaguru and kind of uh, this is kind of a catchy word you know and everybody every leader you may call it face a lip service or I, as i believe i believe they may have internalized this message they the way indian political leadership see 
India's role in the global scenario is that India as a Vishwa Guru. What is Vishwa Guru? World teacher. Basically, uh, the Vishwa Guru is something which is repeatedly posited as the civilizational vision. How Indian political leadership perceived India's role in the global politics, in the global geopolitics, in the globe, uh, globe as a whole. Uh, presently as well as in future. Theoretically speaking, vertical India. Why it is a vertical India, theoretically speaking? Because see, India has always been a knowledge-based civilization. For last uh, many millenniums, you will see that people from all over the world came to India to study. You know, all these Buddhist monks came from China. We had people from all across the world who uh, took very uh, hard journey to come uh, and study in India. But people also came to India because of our wealth, because of our power. It is not just the knowledge. So while it is theoretically speaking a very worthy goal, yes, because all our Shastras uphold Gyanam uh, as high, you know, the Nahi Gyanena Sadrusham Pavitram Miti Uchchate. This is a statement in one of the texts, which means there is nothing as pure as uh, pure as knowledge, as pavitra as knowledge, you know. And this is true. So seeing ourselves as a Vishwaguru, correct, okay. But the way this is being understood today is highly problematic. The ground reality is, while India is on one hand is increasingly discarding its own cultural and knowledge systems and our children are growing up believing our ancestors were losers until the west civilizes the west has appropriated and continues to appropriate and commercialize many of our vidyas yoga ayurveda dhyana etc the yoga is the biggest example our own we don't practice yoga uh, many of us don't appreciate yoga okay what yoga in its full sense but then some of the teachers when these westerners have started coming and they learned a little bit they do one month course two months course and then they go back home and they become teachers and what do we have today we have beer yoga dog yoga goat yoga nude yoga, hot yoga, I don't know what all. So this is, so this is plainly put. This is a appropriation, cultural appropriation, misappropriation, this is a distortion of Hindu practices. This is not, India is not actually teaching them because a teacher has to First, jets the competency of the student and only then teach it. That is what the Shastra says. Shastra is very clear that a teacher has to teach by seeing the competency, sincerity of a person. He cannot teach anything to everything, everything to everyone, right? But we are not doing that. We are allowing the people from other cultures who do not appreciate Sanatana Dharma, who do not appreciate Indian knowledge systems to come and steal our knowledge, appropriate it, distort it, and reformulate it and commercialize it. Is this what we mean by Vishwaguru? 
Is this what we are seeing for, for our future? Just imagine, nobody listens to India. I mean, the situation was very bad 10 years back. Now, at least uh, India's situation in the global scenario is much better in the present uh, uh, NDA government that is there, thanks to the efforts of our prime minister. But still, we have a very long way to go. And we cannot go it if we are just uh, thinking in a very utopian way, we're thinking in a very myopic way, you know, just using names like uh, Vishwaguru will be Vishwaguru. What does this mean? See, currently, uh, who will listen to a country, who will listen to a tradition, a civilization, which is not assertive, which is not strong, which does not have a influence that is unaffected by other out external happening. To be blunt, India cannot be a Vishwaguru until India becomes a strong global power to which the world will look up to and is ready to listen. And this is very important because just saying that India is uh, putting, uh, you know, all this yoga, dhana, ayurveda or soft power, they are soft power, yes, but they will become, I mean, they are soft means, yes, but they become soft power only when we utilize it as a power, only when we apply it as a power, only when we reclaim our knowledge systems and uh, thoughtfully utilize it as a power. But that, that is not enough to utilize soft power, we need to become a hard power as well. Nobody will listen today. Everybody will listen to US. People listen to China. Why? Because they are hard power. If they don't listen, they will make others listen. They will have their way. You, know, you can get so many examples uh, wherein, you know, uh, in many disputes on geopolitics, China always has its way. I mean, one of the criticism for Chinese uh, uh, expansionism is this, where it is that it is not a rule-based system. They use power to have their way. And all power do this. And US does it. Even though US is comparatively better in a sense that it is somewhat rules-based, but the rules are articulated or framed in such a way that it is favorable to them. Without power, there is no influence, and without influence, there can be no impact, no respect. Nobody will listen to us. We cannot be a Vishwaguru. To be a Vishwaguru, then pursuit of power is very much essential. We cannot be sitting in our cocoon. India cannot be sitting in a cocoon wherein we think only, wherein the best we can think about is Pakistan as our enemy. We need to have a larger geopolitical goal. We need to be more assertive geopolitically. We need to have a long-term geopolitical vision, which will, the vision, such a vision that we have a clear-cut vision, wherein we can see ourselves moving from point A to point B, wherein we will be occupying a center stage globally will be a superpower, a global power, a strong power whose words matter, whose actions will matter.
nobody would dare to challenge us nobody would dare to uh appropriate our things only then we can dictate our terms so pursuit of power is very much essential if a country or a civilization wants to make a difference wants to bring a change and this is where india is lacking indian leadership lacks vision i am not saying everything is bad i am not saying there are no people who understand this of course there are there are people who know better than me see i as, as i said at the beginning i am a newbie in this field i am just trying to articulate what i have learned uh, so that you know this vision uh, circulates uh, percolates among the common people we need to have a aspirational vision for our nation not a defensive vision aspirational and assertive vision we need to have for ourselves for our own country but the vision will come you know with vision comes the mindset to pursue power ethically and aim to make india great again see we have this saying in english which says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely but i think yes this is true it is i am we should cannot deny it. there is a great chance that power corrupts but power in itself is neutral what is corrupting is the attachment to power that people have see what is power what is the notion of power in hindu civilization it is called shakti and shakti is neutral in fact shakti is worship see we just finished navratri navratri is celebration of power navratri is celebration of cosmic is a worship of cosmic shakti in her any manner forms we are not afraid of power we do not look down upon power we treat power as a mother we treat power as something very essential something very core to the entire universe without power see in the, in the very first stanza of uh, saundarya lahari adi shankara says that uh, uh, shiva shakti yukte and i mean without shakti shiva cannot even move you know so it is the power which makes everything applied in a geopolitical sense as well we need to understand it is not the power which actually corrupts it is the attachment it is the mental attachment and greed and such weaknesses human weaknesses it is called as arishatvarga greed lust anger these things which corrupt so what does the text suggest text suggest a ruler a kshatriya or any government in today's term has to be indriya nigrahi that is a one who has complete control of his senses complete control over his mind that is a one who can keep his greed and his attachment in a check and can use the power which is called as danda the power to punish the power to reward and punish so can use this power in a ethical manner in a dharmic manner to attain greater goal what is this greater goal in today's term this greater goal is to make india great again we were great we are a great civilization but we are also a civilization who have been fighting a civilization war for the last 1200 years and we are still fighting it a civilizational war is far from over 
so we and we have lost lot of territories in the last 1200 years so we need to make india great again that should be our civilization vision contrast india's attitude i mean we do not do you study all these things in our schools in our media debates in our academia no nobody tells us everybody tells us india is a secular country we were formed 50 years ago no 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 it's not 50 it's around 70 years and uh, and we are at third world developing country but they don't tell you that we were not always third world we were somewhere else we had a, we had among the very big share of gdp before our whole civilization was broken down our economy was completely smashed right so we need to make india great again this should be our civilization vision but contra- contrast our current narrative wherein we have forgotten our civilization vision we have forgotten our we do not have any notion of long term geopolitical goal at all to china however unethical and despicable their methods are and they are unethical and despicable and very cruel in nature but they have a civilization vision and they are playing the global power game which unfortunately we are only now taking a baby steps towards so what is it must india must aspire to be see i gave the china's example that doesn't mean that we have to emulate china or we have to emulate us or anybody we need to derive our civilization vision from our own uh, what to say our own civilization our own text our own knowledge systems that our ancestors has given see we have a distinct advantage in the sense that we are a continuous civilization for the last many thousand years and it is idiocy to think that suddenly we will break away from this long history we have and we will create a new india this is what the founders of this so called new independent india did and this has been a disaster for our country the socialism has been disaster the secularism has been a disaster education has been a disaster so with this uh, uh, with this in mind i researched on the topic what does our text say what is our civilization vision what is the kshatra vision so to speak in a geopolitical sense that our authors our ancient uh, teachers have, have spoken about and i came across this notion of vijigishu i must tell you that before uh, say four to five months i was not even aware of this term called vijigishu and only when i did the research on this topic and discovered this and then i started writing and writing a currently writing a ongoing series in daily guardian on these some of the things that i'll be speaking today on articulating this indic vision of geopolitics so what is this vijig issue we find a mention of this term and its uh, articulation in texts like arthashastra in uh, manusmriti and many other dharma shastra basically vijig issue vijig which comes from you know uh, victory 
one who is desire of victory or one who wants to conquer a vijikishu is basically a king who wants to expand his influence expand his territory expand his kingdom expand his cultural hard and soft influences a conqueror or one who desires to be a conqueror one who is desirous of victory in his expansion is plan in today's term we cannot speak about kings of course in today's terms we need to speak about political leadership so if a political leadership if we are saying that our political leadership is adopting bijikishu as a mindset as a vision then our political leadership should have aspirations should have willingness and should build a capable a capabilities to make this country a global power a global power in every sense of the word so vijigishu refers to a mindset that realizes that power by itself is not corrupting it is not an end in itself instead power must be used as a means to achieve noble and ethical ends and this is one of the most important point our current political leadership they use power for petty things but they do not know how to use power where it needs to be used they do not employ power they are afraid of power or they are uncomfortable with power when it comes to taking larger decisions for larger goals uh, long term goals long term visions a verse from chanakya sutra says the root of happiness sukha is in dharma dharma is ethic ethical duties performance of ethical duties but the root of dharma is in artha artha here does not mean money per se artha here means power wealth and power wealth is also power right and the root of artha is rajya or country and of course who is at the very core of this rajya it is the king or the political establishment so you see what it is basically saying that our sukha the overall well being of a society is dependent upon the dharma how ethical is our country or society but the ability to practice ethics to live a happy ethical life is rooted in artha that is how strong a nation is because stronger a nation more it it facilitates its citizens to pursue their dharma artha kama moksha the four purusharthas and attain overall well being a weak nation see take the socialist uh, communist nations so many people suffer there take the latin countries wherein you know so much problems are there you know even in africa everywhere you know see problems are everywhere but wherein the the state is weak the uh, the problems manifest hundredfold the state has to be strong so that is why state a strong state is the rajya is at the root of artha the stronger the state the stronger is the uh, 
economy stronger is the application of uh, power is stronger is the influence and more means the society is endowed with to fulfill dharma and hence attain sukha medatiti the famous commentator on the manusmriti a much uh, bad mouthed text unfortunately but a text which has so much value today even today it has so much knowledge so much wisdom that we can use it today so medatiti this commentator on the manusmriti he defines three qualities of education the three qualities are that a king who is a vijigishu he should have his people on his side that is he should have the support of the people for his endeavors because otherwise without people support then he cannot even think about expanding his kingdom cannot think about larger playing the larger role because there will be inner rebellion without within us just imagine uh, recently the modi government brought the caa and how nefarious elements try to do this anti caa protest everywhere the shahin bag and all this happened but majority of the population were in support of the government but if this were not so then things would have happened in a very taken to a very bad turn so vijukeshu is one who has people on his side the second quality is he has made up his mind to conquer a certain part of the world so he has made taken a sankalpa that look i think i have all the things needed now and i think this is the right time i think for the good of the people for the good of my subjects for the good of this kingdom i need to expand so that more resources can be tapped into more influence can be increased so on and so forth and thirdly he must be endowed with strength courage and all other resources so he must have the capability he must have the mental sankalpam or mental uh, what conviction and desire and a decision that has to do has to or uh, take up this expansionism and he should have people on it kautilya further says that vichikishu is one who is possessed of good character and best fitted elements of sovereignty and is a foundation a fountain of policy thus the vision and willingness capability and competence and the popular mandate all are necessary for a country to become vijigishu see this enunciation here it is not being said that a country has to be expansionist or a vijigishu just for a, a sake of some um uh, greed no it is saying the leadership must be a good character that is a leadership must have a clear cut vision they must have the welfare of their citizens welfare and the long term vision for the country for the good of the country for the overall good of the country and 
they must have these capabilities and if they do not have the capability they must build these capabilities such that five years down the line 10 years down the line 50 years down the line what uh, the, the the plans can be put into motion so this is what india must aspire to be today we need to adopt vijig issue the ideal of vijig issue as a maxim as our geopolitical vision as a geopolitical mindset we need to start thinking not in terms of what india not in terms of india as a third world country as india as a developing power but in terms of a long term say uh, 50 years or 100 years vision of where india wants to see itself in 100 years the today's geopolitical scenario is different but 100 years from now it will look quite different just imagine previous before the situation was quite different in post covid the geopolitical situation suddenly changed you know suddenly we are say uh, china is pushed into a corner but they are still strong they are not uh, uh, daunted by this but suddenly india is now holding this uh, quad talks and all these things happening the geopolitical changes happen all the time and sometimes it happens suddenly sometimes it evolves slowly so we need to have a long term vision and not a short term vision and china has such a long term vision i was reading this wonderful book the 100 years wars or something like that the title is by american uh, defense researcher this is how china since 1950s it has a 100 year vision and it is slowly building to it to become the world power we should not emulate china or us or any countries but we need to come up with our own vision our own plan we need to chart it out the first step would be to recognize the need for india to aspire to become a vijig issue and then to become a chakravarti the vijig issue is one who wants to conquer one who wants to uh, win but a chakravarti is one who has attained that goal has become a global power so first we need to change our global vision we need to start seeing ourselves as a vijig issue and not just as a developing country with no global ambition second we need to have a goal to become a chakravartin and we need to work out a plan chart out a plan with milestones how to reach it and this would be very this would be take a lot of research lot of consultations and this could be a dynamic thing which involves lot of overlapping areas of defense economy uh, foreign policy and so much uh, so many other things right but before going further in the context of vijig issue we need to understand another frame a framework that kautilya and other indu texts give it is the framework of mandala the mandala theory always the vijig issue is mentioned in the context of mandala mandala means a circle it's a mandala is basically a theory of state craft uh, wherein uh, it has been conceived to help vijigishu vijigishu is the most important aspect uh, uh, central element of this mandala is at the center of this mandala and the whole framework has been designed to help this vijigishu 
to understand the global geopolitical game and assist him in real time to play this game and eventually reach this goal of becoming a chakravarti the chakravarti can be loosely translated as world power in today's term but a proper translation would be to attain one who attains dominion over his chakra chakra is a circle of influence the circle of geopolitical influence india for example at one point of time had a geopolitical influence of uh, of what today constitutes tibet afghanistan pakistan even central asia southeast asia we had a huge geopolitical influence and this influence could be in many ways some of these areas were under direct control of indian kings some of these areas we influence through trade to culture through both soft and hard power i gave the example of cholas for example right so in today's language a chakravarti is one who has become a global superpower and has established his influence everywhere and vijikeshu is one who aspires to attend this attain this the mandala theory conceives the world in terms of circles of geopolitical uh, allies and enemies with vijikeshu at the center there are well components but of which one, four are most important the four is first is the vijikeshu or the king bent upon conquest the second is ari or the enemy who is the main contender main opponent of this vijikeshu the third is madhyama who is an intermediary and the fourth is udasina or a neutral and i will come describing shortly what are these the rest of the elements are basically friends and allies of these four uh, major elements india today is in a very unique position because see, what is the meaning of speaking about all this the meaning is that it is very much useful to our present situation india today is in a unique position because it is ruled by a party which has a popular mandate it has capability and competency as well but somehow at least in my limited reading of the current happening what is lacking is the vision willingness and a deep desire in indian leadership to take india to a global stage not just economically see we are doing economically we are trying to be on the global stage economically but we need to move further we need to take up the center stage in every sense of the world and this can happen only when we commit our geopolitical policy our foreign policy to this vision of chakravarti to this vision aspiration of a big issue so let me describe oh, this the four elements uh, the, in the mandala theory the, we already saw what big issues the ari is the geopolitical enemy of the conqueror the vijigishu person and these are of three types the kautilya and other text speaks about three kinds of geopolitical enemy they are the called as natural enemy artificial enemy and the neighboring state this is given in a text called vikra uh, viramitradaya a text on dharma natural enemy is one who is equal in status and power to the vijigishu and uh, hence is naturally an opponent you know the artificial or the acquired enemy is one which is antagonist to vijigishu 
and is bent upon creating problems. And the third is, of course, a neighboring state. See, these are all must be understood as frameworks. See, the mandalas, the Vijayakishu, these are all frameworks. These are all not fixed concepts. These are all frameworks which need to be interpreted to our situation. So I am just giving an example of how we can interpret in today's situation. Uh, for example, Pakistan is a good example of a state which is both an artificial enemy, which is hell-bent on uh, you know, destroying us through housing cuts, as well as our immediate neighbor. China, especially in its post-Tibet uh, annexation, it has fallen into all the three categories. Post-Tibet annexation, it has become a neighboring state. It, has a, it is an artificial enemy which wants to undermine India. It is also a natural enemy because it treats us as someone with, uh, with the potential to pose a challenge to it in the Asian geopolitical uh, geography. right? And Kautil specifically says that not every neighboring state is a geopolitical enemy. It all depends upon intentions and attitudes towards the people. So next, after the enemy, we have the Madhyama or the intermediary. It is basically a territory which is close to both the Vijigishu and its immediate enemy, the Ari. And uh, it, is, um, it, it is capable of helping both, whether united or disunited, or resisting them individually as well. Nepal could be a good example of Madhyama, but though in a strict sense, it is, it is no position to resist either India or China. Right? Udasina is the neutral. A US or America as the United States is the best example for a neutral power. It is a, it is a power which is situated far away from the territory of Vijigishu, Ari and Madhyama. That is, US is currently uh, geographically very removed from South Asia, right? But it is very powerful. It is powerful to help or resist either Vijikishu, Ari, Madhyama, or individually or all of them together, right? So it's a very powerful nation. So United States fits into the framework of Udasina. So these four components form the root of geopolitical circle. And a Vijikeshu is expected to continuously put efforts to consolidate his position, expand his circle of influence and control, and reduce the power of others in the vicinity. Reduce the powers, especially undermine his uh, enemy. See, uh, uh, how the, in the current scenario, you can see that China is continuously trying to undermine our uh, border, our uh, it is continuously uh, deliberately keeping our borders uh, conflict alive. But Indian policy, even now, is to recognize one China policy. We are still not recognized Taiwan as a legitimate country. So I mean, it is time the the, the, the direction that I am trying to point out that India should thoughtfully not carelessly, thoughtfully take up measures which, which undermines its Ari, its enemy. And in, in, in the South Asian scenario, it is uh, definitely China as far as India is concerned. It has to continuously, India has to build its power, capability, and at the same time, undermine the 
mechanize not only undermine the mechanizations of the enemy against us but also through our own proactive efforts undermine the enemy dismantle the enemy as a whole and this is where we are not doing we are still a our our mindset in foreign policy is still a defensive mindset we need to change this into an offensive mindset that is this offensive mindset is what is called as vichigishu mindset right we shift from a position of defense to position of offense so the ideal of vichigishu is what ancient indian rulers aspired for it is this aspirations that made india global power and a vishwa guru in the past and india can again become this chakravartim and a vishwa guru it once was the starting point for this is to adopting vichigishu as our aspiration as a, our mindset as our change in our foreign policy change in our foreign outlook now coming to the uh, but there are some aspects to what i just spoke about i spoke about jigishu chakravartin expansion but still there are certain concerns and rightly especially the term expansionism is 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 uh, is, is, is a bad term is not a uh, well taken term especially in discussions of foreign policy and uh, um, global affairs and this is because despite the fact that geopolitical expansionism has existed throughout history and across the world and it is a fact that it exists even today still because of our, the memories of two world wars that happened in the last century this memory is still fresh and because of this uh, we have a tendency to perceive war and expansionism as inherently bad and there are lot many people who will advocate extreme pacifism as a way forward for peace all this pacifism gandhian ahimsa looks good on paper but and this is not fully unjustified i say yes the world wars were bad the war is bad in the sense that it has serious consequences on the ground it leads to lot of killing a lot of families which are broken down yes definitely but the utopian idea that somehow pacifism will lead the way for peace is utopian idea and it has very little basis for how the world really works see i remember this serial a hindi serial i i, I watched i think i could not watch more than one episode it portrays a, some utopian kingdom wherein there is no army they are so peace loving people they have no standing army at all just imagine the naivety of this uh, this kind of narrative if you are not strong then rest assured somebody else who is strong enough is going to come and occupy you is going to come and slaughter you is going to come and create huge kind of Uh, you know uh, inhuman activities which you wanted to prevent and hence did not have a army in the first place so that is why this extreme pacifism and such ideas they do not have a basis in reality aggressor will always be there and many aggressors most aggressors are not ethical they are driven by greed 
they are driven by uh, obsession but they do not have mercy see the, the hindu ideal of kshatriya is that a kshatriya's duty is to use power to protect the weak to protect the good and if krishna says that he took avatara to protect the weak and the good against the adharma right that is says whenever dharma deteriorates he takes again and again to protect dharma protect the weak right and this is the kshatriya idea that to use power for the good so the fact is in world politics even today or throughout history self interest has always been supreme here the conventional notion of ethics do not apply the conventionally we speak about uh, something like you know non violence is good and this is bad uh, you know you should not tell lies falsehood is bad see these are all correct but what is ethical in our day to day life in a individual level is not true in a geopolitical level the very notion of spy you know the spying the notion of secrecy and all this uh, you know even kautilya speaks about the very detailed spy network this is a field which is completely full of deception you cannot apply normal rules of ethics to a how a country runs the issues of geopolitics it has its own conventions of ethics it has its own rules of ethics and in geopolitics self interest self interest here means the interest of a particular nation particular country particular civilization is at most important india's interest is at most important than all other uh, notions of ethics so the foremost duty of a ruler or a government is to ensure that overall well being of his subjects and this not only involves fighting aggression with aggression not only involves being defensive defending oneself but also being aggressive also being expansionist also being proactively continuously striving to expand one's territory and influence for the good of the whole kingdom whole civilization and kautilya mandala theory aims to achieve this when we speak about expansionism the term i have used is a dharmic expansionism is it something i have made up no this is something i have derived from the text like kautilya kautilya says there are three kinds of expansions possible he calls it dharma vijaya loba vijaya and asura vijaya and those who do it the the kind of nations which involve in it are called as dharma vijayi loba vijayi and asura vijayi who is a dharma vijayi a dharma vijayi is one is a kind of a righteous conqueror who is satisfied with the opponent accepting his suzerainty through mere obedience that is uh, we see this you know in how mahabharata and other places the kings used to do go for vijaya yatra adhik vijaya yatra they defeat they defeated many kingdoms and this defeated kingdoms accepted uh, 
the victorer as their chakravarti you know yudhishthira that rajasuyagya right but yudhishthira did not occupy physically occupy the territory of this defeated person they were left to rule and they were in turn asked to provide some kind of tax and some kind of tribute etc so a dharma vijayi is one who uh, wherein he is happy to accept uh, you know when he is happy when the opponent is accepting uh, the superiority of this nation the victor and uh, but the loba vijayi is one uh, who wages war to gain in terms of land and wealth he wants to have territory wants to have wealth he wants to fill his coffers and asura vijayi not only takes wealth and land etc he completely tries to vanquish the opponent he completely tries to destroy the opponent writing about the superiority of dharma vijay in terms of ethics vr ramachandra dikshitar in his book war in ancient india says according to kautilya dharma vijaya mean meant that a conquering king was satisfied with acknowledgement of his overlordship by the inferior or the defeated powers as also by others it is a righteous method of warfare where diplomacy and conciliation were pressed into service to avoid actual fighting in kalidasa raghuvamsha king ragu is praised as the dharma vijayi conquered many lands but restored the lands to the defeated kings instead of, and instead received only symbolic tribute we see indian kings like samudragupta following dharma vijaya ideal but uh while this is definitely an ideal there is a caveat that needs to be added here what these three kinds of um uh, expansionism that kautilya speaks about shows is that not all kinds of expansionism is bad not all kinds of expansionism is unnecessary we need to be very careful while making judgments you know passing generalization a vijigeshu vision can be such that it is ethical it is for a right purpose but a caveat needs to be added here regarding dharma vijaya is that while it is ideal form of an expansionism dharma vijaya is the ideal form of expansionism however in reality it may not always be desirable i mean see, we need to differentiate between theory and practice the three modes we have to understand this three kinds of uh, dharma uh, this three kinds of expansionism in two definitions as three modes of conquest that anybody can apply you know we need should not see this three modes of conquest in three different silos as a as in isolation but as three different options available for every nation every ruler to properly utilize them based on different situations this understanding is important because let me give you an example of misapplications of ideals of dharma vijaya we all know about how prithviraj chauhan lost to uh, mohammad ghori but before he lost in the second battle he had won against him in the first battle but he allowed 
Muhammad Ghori to return. He allowed him to return because of the ideal of Dharma Vijaya he was adhering. And this was a huge mistake because it not only cost Prithviraj his life, it cost, it had a huge cost. The Hindu civilization had to pay huge cost for it. We had to suffer centuries of slavery under Islamic rule wherever women were raped, women were converted, our temples were broken, we had to pay jizya. Just imagine. Similarly, India messed up in recent history, India messed up Tibet situation. It is India's lack of expansionist mindset which resulted in China, which is clearly Asura Viji, not only gobbling up Tibet in entirety, but also causing destruction to life, culture, and religion of Tibet. Why is China Asura Vijay? Because it did not attack uh, Tibet to just establish its supremacy. It completely, it has tried to completely kill the soul of the Tibet. Tibetan soul, the Buddhist soul, has completely wiped out the culture of Tibet. It has created huge it is genocide of people. Clearly Asura So when, we, when the Arthashastra mentions about this Dharma Vijaya, Loba Vijaya and Asura Vijaya, we need to understand in two different ways. One is as three modes of expansionism that are available uh, for any ruler, any nation, any nation which wants to become a Vijayakishu. And second, based on the motive and the primary mode adopted by a Vijayakishu, the Vijayakishu can be classified into any of the three categories. So a nuanced way of understanding Kautilya modes of conquest is that the three modes in the hands of a dharmic Vijayakishu, who while fighting a dharmic battle and has the ideal of Dharma Vijaya in mind, he does not hesitate from employing modes of Loba Vijaya and Asura Vijaya wherever necessary. It is not for no reason that Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that there is nothing better for a Kshatriya than fighting a righteous battle. What is a righteous battle? A dharmic battle is one which is based for a dharmic reasons and in such a battle one must employ all the means necessary. The three modes of conquest as well as the four strategies of Samadama, Danda and Bed. See, let, let this sink in. What I am trying to say is if we are to divide conquerors or those with uh, expansionist attitudes by way of their motives, we can divide it in three. But each of the, these three people can adopt this uh, Dharma Vijayi, Asura Vijayi and uh, uh, Loba Vijaya modes or methods as well based on different uh, consequences. So the same terms can refer to the player, the actor, who, the Vijigishu, as well as the method of, used by Vijigishu. So let me just uh, clarify this. Uh, now you will be able to make more sense of it uh, when we speak at this in, a, in the terms of, uh, you know, what it means on the ground today. Uh, consider uh, China, as I said, China, if we consider its uh, intention, if we consider its methods of how it is 
doing its expansionism by intention it is very clearly a asura vijay it wants to have a complete control of the globe it wants to be unipolar global power and if it wants it is it has territorial ambitions it did not attack uh india's uh, you know the ladakh areas now and the, you know the galwan etc just you know just threaten us it wants to occupy the territory it wants to occupy territory in the southeast asia as well so it is the asura vijay and it it does not care about lives of people the cultures of people see the cultural genocide in tibet is a big issue so by motive and its actions china is clearly asura vijay but in its actions the modes it applies it is applying the modes of both asura vijaya as well as loba vijay it is using economics you know the the the, the projects that it is currently doing the belt and road project it is clearly a use of it is a mode of loba vijaya wherein it is using economy to blackmail country right on the other hand us do not uh, united states do not have a, a geographical territorial ambitions it has more of a economic ambition so by motive it is a uh, loba vijay by motive it's a loba vijay but it also applies all the three methods the methods of dharma vijaya asura vijaya and loba vijaya at various uh, situations and with various countries and geopolitical game what i am arguing is it is india alone which has a capability to emerge as a dharmic vijigishu which emerge emerge as a dharma vijayi as far as its motive is concerned because our it is our civilization which has dharma at its very core which has ethics at its very core which has the good of the world at its very core sarve bhuvantu sukhinaha this is our core civilization vision all the people of the world should be sukha so we alone can emerge as a dharma vijaya as a dharmic vijigishu who has dharma as its motive but who will not hesitate to apply all the three modes of dharma vijaya asura vijaya and loba vijaya to attain that goal so what all this means for india today what does it actually translate in current terms if i have to say that see the title says india has to em- embrace dharmic expansionism as a geopolitical goal so what does it translate in a more substantial sense you know more concrete sense not in abstract sense that we were speaking first it would mean as they see in my limited understanding i will again add first it would mean that indian state will have to recognize itself as a civilizational state as a hindu civilizational state which is many millennia old and not a modern nation state created in 1947 the greatest baggage that we have we have been carrying on our backs since 1947 is this that we are a modern nation modern state created in 1947 we have to give up this baggage and we have to adopt we have to reconnect with our civilization 
with our notion of being a hindu civilization state with this change in mindset what does this change in mindset imply it implies that second that indian state will then if we accept that we are a hindu civilization state then we will recognize that indian civilization the hindu civilization has been in a perpetual war since the last 1200 years which has been imposed by abrahamic religions european colonizers and other global geopolitical actors so we accepting that we are a hindu civilization state implies that we recognize all the threats that are being posed to our uh, civilization as a whole and to recognize that we are in this civilization of war from last 1200 years with the first attempt to in uh, at in islamic invasion started this is a perpetual war because the enemies are still there they are not and we have continuously lost territories and this is very important indian state has to recognize will recognize uh, in case we accept uh, this dharmic expansion as a geopolitical goal and ourselves as a hindu civilization state the indian state will recognize and accept the historical fact that the perpetual war has cost india hugely over the last 1200 years it has cost us hugely yes we have survived as a civilization but we have to we had to pay a huge cost we have lost in terms of geography in terms of territory in terms of culture religion and civilization in ethos we have lost our areas of influence we did not lose our territory only during 1947 partition of course we lost pakistan and bangladesh then but it was not the only time we have been continuously losing territory since the advent of islamic invasion on the islam uh, eve, eve of islamic invasion india as a civilization state at that time it not only included present countries of pakistan bangladesh but also afghanistan and beyond some some portions of even central asia under its geographical control but more importantly in the north the hindu buddhist influence was present in central asia and china this influence was present throughout southeast asia we lost all of it while we lost the direct geographical territories at some places we lost cultural civilization influences in other places and post independence also this loss has not stopped we lost tibet we lost aksai chin to china and we have been losing i have read news about how to under upa government we have lost some territories and now also uh, there are conflicting reports of what happened in balwan some say that china is sitting on that territories it has occupied in april so we are continuously losing territory so what would uh, in this scenario what would it mean for india today that we are we decide for example just say india today takes up this decision sankalpam that from today we will be become a vijikeshu 
we will have a dharmic expansionism as our civilization as our geopolitical goal what would it this mean it means that once the indian state recognizes these historical and civilizational realities about our nation then we will have a clarity necessary clarity and confidence to develop what we need to do next to develop an expansionist geopolitical goals for retaking the lost geographies and cultural spaces and finally bring an end to the perpetual war that has been imposed upon a indian civilization See, what it means is what i am trying to say is we have to adopt a dharmic expansionism as a geopolitical goal because by adopting such a goal only we can achieve two things the in, the goal in geopolitical terms will be two one to retake all the lost geographies and cultural spaces that we lost in last 1200 years and this retaking may involve geographically undoing the partition wherein we last lost uh, pakistan and afghan uh, bangladesh as well as the uh, geographically retaking the territories of afghanistan etc which we lost but it may also involve it will also involve increasing our cultural influences in other territories like southeast asia which has now become completely christianized so it is a complicated goal and it will not happen in a day or two it will take decades it may take a century or two secondly it will it means that we will bring an end to this perpetual war that the abrahamic have been waging against us the conversions the love jihad and all these threats it may be inside the geography of india it may be outside the geography of india we will have to defeat them we will have to end them once and for all so this would involve this has to involve indian state employing all the three modes of conquest acquisition of allies acquisition of wealth acquisition of territories acquisition of and complete vanquishing of the enemy as and when necessary the internal the external they have to go in hand in hand one cannot we cannot say we will pursue this now we will pursue something later this never work we have to simultaneously pursue all of them being vijikishu means that we will take a sankalp from today that we will retake we will undo the partition we will retake the geographies we lost uh, in 1200 years we will retake much more than that we will retake all over cultural spaces as well why because these legitimately belong to us this belong to us when we speak about bharatavarsha bharatakhande you know when when we take a religious sankalpa we say speak about um bharatakhande bharatavarshe dandakaranye the bharatakhande is very vast it is very very vast we need to retake it because we lost it retaking it back is definitely not a dharma it is a dharmic goal it is our civilization we, we are writing a civilizational wrong 
we are correcting the defeat which happened to us in the past we are writing this we are correcting this we are achieving what we lost but more importantly this is the right way forward because india alone has a capability to be a dharmic vijayakishu to be a dharmic chakravarti to be a dharma vijay because in uh, the core of our civilization we have this notion of sarve bhavantu sukhinaha sarve santu niramaya let there be sukha for everyone in all corners of the world it is our civilization alone have which have this the abrahamics don't have it they divide the world into castes and they, and the believers the infidels and the believers we alone have it and we alone have this we alone have this cap- capacity to to bring a dharmic world order across the globe so this becomes a dharmic duty for us so when when aurobindo said india's duty is to uphold sanatan dharma india exists to uphold sanatan dharma i think he meant this i don't know i don't know why aurobindo of course but this is how i interpreted to uphold sanatan dharma to create a world order based on sanatan dharma india has to be global superpower india has to have a dharmic expansionist outlook india has to take proactive measures to increase its power and influence take back the territories it lost take back the cultural spaces it lost using all the means necessary and india cannot move forward in this to fulfill this agenda to fulfill this civilizational purpose which is given to it by the very divinity by breaking itself from its past the only way forward is to accept the reality of our past fight the perpetual civilizational war imposed upon us and embrace dharmic expansionism as a geopolitical goal to reclaim the lost geographies and cultural spaces and fly fight our way to become a global superpower uh, to conclude we have to make our new mantra our geopolitical mantra cannot be vasudeva kutumbakam which is applied in a very wrong way see perhaps i'll be writing some day on how geopolitical uh, and how vasudeva kutumbakam can be rightly interpreted in a uh, in a geopolitical sense it's a, it's a spiritual goal wherein but in a geopolitical sense the way it is applied today that everyone is one family i mean everyone is equal we should not be aggressive we should not recognize our enemies it is like hindi chini bhai bhai that is not what vasudeva kutumbakam means and the uh, what family funny thing is it it this does not recognize the notion of family in hindu tradition family is not a equality structure in hinduism it is a hierarchical structure the father is at the head of the family the parents have the position of power but they also have more responsibilities and more restrictions the children do not have power but they have lot of freedom and very less responsibilities so if we are to interpret 
Vasudeva Kutumbakam in this sense, in a geopolitical sense, then we have to understand that in our vision of world as a family, we are the head of the family. And being the head of the family, we have great responsibilities, but also great power. And this power helps us to teach our children, which are the other countries, by using any means necessary. In a geopolitical sense, it, it, may, it involves using Samadhamad and Abeda. If the children is wayward, if he is taken to Adharma, then we have to teach him using harsh means. Right? This is the way to interpret in a geopolitical sense and not the way that is currently done. Anyways, I want to end by saying that our new mantra should be Veera Bhogya Vasundara. This is the motto of Rajputana Rifles. I think this, this must have existed among the Rajput communities even before Rajputana Rifles adopted it. This is actually a half verse of, uh, which is found in Shivapurana, but the context there is different. But in the geopolitical uh, context, it is uh, first mentioned as, at least to, to the best of my knowledge, in an anthology of Subhashita's uh, called Mahasubhashita Sangraha, wherein it says, casting of the incompetent, the competent king enjoys. The Lord of the men, not there is mercy, etc. The hero's enjoyment is the Veera Bhogi Vasundara. That is a hero, a nation, a king who is a hero, who is a Vijigishu, he will cast off, he will defeat, he will overthrow the incompetent nations, incompetent kingdoms. And he will enjoy, he will occupy those territories, he will increase his influence, and he will enjoy the earth. Enjoy the earth means he will rule the earth. He will provide a proper rule to the earth. This should be our geopolitical goal. This Virbhoge Vasundara is the maxim, the mantra which best captures education. An incompetent, incompetence can be of many nature. We need to understand incompetence could be of different nature. Incompetence could be, uh, you know, in the form of administration. Incompetence could be in the form of ethics as well, you know. Dharma, Artha, Kama. Or an incompetent kingdom could be in any or all the three of the categories. Uh, in the category of Kama, an incompetent kingdom is one where the citizens cannot fulfill their desires in a proper way. It is either too poor, or they do not have means, etc. In terms of artha, an incompetent a kingdom is a non-prosperous kingdom, wherein the people are put to a lot of troubles, wherein the, the, the country is completely mismanaged, corrupt. An incompetent kingdom in terms of ethics is a highly corrupt kingdom, highly unethical kingdom, a kingdom a country like China, which has put its own citizens into great misery, it has killed its own citizens, it has cultural genocide and so many things. That is incompetency with respect to dharma. So it is a duty of a Vijikeshu to cast off these incompetent kingdoms and establish competency, establish dharma in the world. And such a hero, such a veer, alone is fit to, competent to enjoy the earth. 
competent to rule the if india were to adopt this as our new mantra for geopolitics we would be turning a very new chapter which has potential to make india great again which has potential to make india uh, a great civilization again a great superpower a world power who will then be a vishwaguru in a true sense of the word because then our words matter our decisions matter we will have greater responsibility yes but also we will be able to bring a dharmic world order the gun law in india right to say that to to give this you know thought to people to say that we have always been about ahimsa you know we never waged any war uh, maybe the standard or or the point was to say that we never did atrocities we did not enslave people we did not kill people for no reason but we did wage war in the past so when you talk about gun law there are some discussions happening right now not at a very large scale but discussions to say that we need to make the law little lenient so that people should be able to buy weapons not like us for sure where you can buy it from a uh, you know a normal departmental store but yes uh, should be able to buy so uh, do you think that could be uh, a possibility in india not a free purchase but yes uh, some leniency provided you have a good reason you also talked about you know uh, misrepresentation of yoga right but do you think that is because we as indians uh do not say that no this is not the right way to do it for example i have heard people who would say that it is okay to chant anything you can chant amen you can chant uh, you know anything the om or the mantra however the yoga should be with the mantra otherwise it is not yoga then let's call it exercise you know that is the more more appropriate name for it uh, so do you think that is because we indians do not own the things that we should own uh, you talked about this fantastic concept that the root of happiness is dharma the root of dharma is artha and the artha is rajya do you think that when it comes to the state while morality is very important for a human being as a citizen i should be morally correct but do you think that when it comes to state i should not expect the same amount of morality for the from the state because how else would the state be able to wage wars and waging war, war is not always uh, uh, you know expansionism it can also be to defend yourself to gain new territories in in a positive way so do you think this moral expectation that we have from a state to say that oh this is right this is wrong as you can see right now uh, for the religious appropriation which is happening Uh, uh to you know to pose macaron to say that okay now the state should take a stand so do you think that we should not expect our states to be so moral as the expectation should be from the citizens okay uh yeah uh, yeah uh, so on the gun control issue um, yes i mean yeah con- considering the way current things are going especially the threats to hindu civilization and the demographic changes that are happening i definitely say that it is time that we loosen the gun laws and uh, we need to uh, empower people because see the bad elements in the society the criminal elements in the society is anyways they have the access to all these weapons uh, in a illegal way right it's it simply cannot be you cannot stop it you can monitor it but you cannot stop it 
it is the innocent who uh, who is the victim you know and we become defenseless it is not just the guns uh, the gun laws i think we need to uh, uh, provide easy access to other forms of defense as well and this is what my personal opinion is yes of course not in a way that it is in us and you know they can go and buy it in a department store of course but in a not in the way it is currently exists in india as well so that is true that is one thing on yoga uh, to quickly respond there are many reasons for what is happening with yoga and the way it is happening but one of the important reasons is also of course the fault lies with us with our own teachers because uh in this uh, to simplify teachings to people who are not from our culture we diluted it to begin with asana is not yoga asana is one limb of yoga and unfortunately this was not much stressed and we promoted asana itself as something else as, as something uh, isolated on its own but this is a uh, first stage of issue wherein we started this and this is happening and lot of indian teachers hindu teachers do this mistake they they try to downplay i mean you know don't play with statements like yoga is science it is not religion and all those things this is this has serious problems in a long term and it is having this problem this particular leads to appropriation and all but the fact that those who are appropriating they are kind of basically stealing the knowledge that goes that is there as well they are stealing they are appropriating they are distorting that you cannot take that away from the, uh, the those who are doing it by saying that our teachers are at fault wholly they our teachers are at fault yes for what they did but those who received and distorted it they share a important blame as well they are at fault as well uh the last part was uh, i think about morality see i think uh, in morality uh, let me use the indic term dharma dharma is different in different uh, situations it is not that state does not have dharma it is not that state cannot stay in dharma in fact see when it says dharmasya moolaha artha and sukhasya moolaha dharma what it is basically saying that ultimately the state's goal is to create yoga kshema the sukha for all its citizens and the way to do it is dharma but way the, the 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 power is what which facilitates the practice of dharma but dharma in the individual context is completely different in the context of a state especially in the geopolitics when uh, we are speaking uh, of geopolitics i have a specific thing in mind uh, how our nation interacts with other nations in the world right take the example of uh, we have this agencies of raw you know research and analysis wing and america has cia and uh, all this mossad and etc you cannot ask them to work by our conventional notions of dharma what is the conventional notion conventional notion is samanya dharma samanusmriti says ahimsa satyam asteyam shaucham indriya negram we have to be ahimsa we have to be satya we have to be asteya asteya means non stealing 
but those involved in this uh, intelligence work they do everything against them they routinely involved in deception they routinely involved in different levels of violence they routinely involved in you know even stealing you got my point right this conventional sense cannot be applied to be in these situations the vishesha dharma which is the context specific the profession specific dharma outweighs the samanya dharma conventional when it comes to state in its um, rule even internal rule not just the uh, outer uh, uh, dealings but how it rules the country the first and foremost and the most important aspect is yogakshem that is the duty of a ruler to provide yogakshema for all the citizens overall well being of a citizen he is it providing that too it is the duty of the ruler to protect its citizens to punish the criminals to protect the innocent see the, the rajadharma is very clear so when we speak about the state and its morality and its ethics we have to speak about rajadharma we have to evaluate the states from not from the conventional notions of ethics but the notions of rajadharma whether the state is adhering to rajadharma or not and being in kali yuga things have become very complicated right so i think i hope this answers your question there is one part where i you know i dare to disagree with what you have said um you talked about um you know acquiring the territories that we have lost um a lot of people talk about akhand bharat while logically and spiritually i agree with that but not geographically because the moment you talk about akhand bharat um can we ignore the fact that the people who have uh, taken away that land have uh, you know how to, how to say it politely yeah they have a completely different religious political beliefs and i think that would be very toxic if it, if we even think about getting it back so okay, I, yeah yeah i got your we, point i got yeah. your point the point and 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 i'll be very blunt in my answer so this is what i was telling we need to not we should not apply uh, conventional notions of ethics to issues of geopolitics second we need to understand the situation from a very civilizational perspective and not just immediate perspective so your sympathies and the, the i understand this you are speaking from the standpoint of compassion or standpoint of uh, uh, for someone who finds it very difficult to even think about the kind of uh, violence this expansion of territory could involve including change of religious demography in the conquered lands right i understand your question right this is the question you but let us let me give a historical perspective how did what is today pakistan what is today afghanistan became what it is today how did this big happen these were areas ruled by hindu kings these were areas where hindu traditions like shaiva shaiva tradition bauda traditions 
for practice forget pakistan and uh, afghanistan that is the case with kashmir the demographic change the change in religion in these territories did not happen peacefully our ancestors died waging the war, protecting their lands our ancestors were forced at the end of the war to convert they were forcibly converted their daughters were raped they were taken slaves they were killed there was huge violence please understand this there was huge violence it did not happen just like we were the victims our civilization was the one attacked their ideologies is the aggressor right if we are today taking it back it simply means that we are taking what belong to us back we, if, if we if we are changing the demography the religion today in that those population it simply means we are making them return to their original roots we are writing a historical wrong it no matter what the means that needs to be applied it may be violent it may not be violent there may be many ways but there is other aspect to the issue if you say that what you are essentially saying is our enemies can use any means necessary to convert us to kill us to maim us but we should not do anything about it we should be sitting ducks because that is happening in india see let let, let us uh, come to present situation in 50 years from now hindus will be minority in major parts of india and another 50 years from then hindus will be wiped out of the face of the earth it may be 100 years or it may happen in 200 years but this is definitely going to happen if we uh, if in our sense of mistaken mistaken application of senses of compassion and pacifism and ahimsa we will be slaughtered we need to understand this very clearly what is love jihad can you justify love jihad what are we doing to counter it what is but rape jihad the enemy has clear cut goal they have a very clear cut goal see the islamic sects they, they divide the world into darul harab and darul islam and they want to convert darul harab into darul islam that is a very simplified straight forward goal they have and they are working towards it they are working towards it whether we we will sit the blindfolded turning a blind eye or not is our choice but they will do everything they can to attain this if we have to survive today then we have to counter this at home and out so retaking back the territories that i am speaking this is we would be doing not for some kind of greed some kind of um you know some kind of ideological reasons the way islam has done or way the christians have done we will be doing it to bring establish a global world order again a dharmic world order wherein there will be dharma everywhere 
a strong chakravartin alone is able to establish dharma see manasmriti has a very beautiful verse it says irrespective of whether we live in satya yuga treta yuga dwapariga kali yuga a king between the time and the king it is the king who is prominent supreme because a king has the power to create satya yuga to create dharata yuga to create dwapariga or create kali yuga based on the kind of rule he gives you your disagreement is from a uh, common sensical way of looking at things it comes from a heart but that is that that application is a misapplication when it comes to geopolitics we cannot apply a uh, conventional sense of ethics we cannot apply conventional um, pacifistic sense or a compassionate spiritual sense of our ethics when it comes to raj dharma because raj dharma see who is a kshatriya a kshatriya is not a sanyasi so kshatriya is not one who 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 thinks in a myopic way see what you think your your disagreement is basically rooted in myopic understanding uh, about the geopolitical issues and i am not this is not a criticism it's just merely an analysis most of the people have this understanding of the world that is why the, the, we have a what is called as raj dharma kshatriya dharma wherein those who are in position of power have to think in a certain way they have to understand dharma in a certain way and they have to take difficult decision it is not going to be easy decision let me tell you and i am not saying i am not a warmonger i am not saying kill everyone so that is not what i am arguing here what i am arguing is we need to establish a dharmic world order we need to take back what we lost because it they rightfully belong to us they were violently taken away from us and we were see these lands that we lost these are our sacred lands we have our temples in pakistan for god's sake our hindu women were converted there even in the last 50 years we need to take back our sacred areas our loyalty should be to sanatana dharma to our land which is sacred to us you see it from this perspective then it will be a king's duty him or a ruler's political leadership duty their burden to decide what is the best course of action to attain achieve this right it is very much possible that not a single drop of blood is shed in such a transmission such a expansion it is possible see we do not know but we have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst because the fact is we like it or not we are fighting this civilizational war which has been imposed upon us for the last 1200 years and today we are in a very unique situation wherein we are take we have to take a last final stand if we don't take this stand then perhaps in another two or three generations or five generation our grandkids and their grandkids perhaps they will no longer be hindus they will not know who is shiva who is kali they will not have any affinity to temples there won't be any temples we the whole sanatan dharma will be wiped out 
I know, I have a hope, I have Shraddha in my Devata that we will not be wiped out. We will take corrective actions. And it is this hope, it is this Shraddha that made me to do this presentation, made me to write uh, on this. So I disagree with your disagreement, but I think we can take more questions and uh, we, there will, we can always agree to disagree. One of the criticisms against the Mandala theory is that uh, it is this kind of Mandala theory that actually kept India disunited in the 7th and 8th centuries. Uh, right. So what is your take on that? I mean, are you reinterpreting the Mandala theory or uh, I mean, how are you doing this? No, I think see that criticism, I have not studied that criticism, but I don't think that criticism is correct because see, what is that? What is this Mandala theory? It's a framework for any king or any nation to understand the geopolitical field and play the game. That was true 2000 years ago. That is true today. That will be true 2000 years from now. The only the the the, the landscape changes a bit. The the kind of players changes a bit. The, but the basic framework remains the same. See, today I just explained, we can analyze the current global situation using this theory. So this theory is basically a framework to understand and play the chess, so to speak. As far as disunity is concerned, see, the point was, India was, though Chakravarti was the ideal, see, we were politically a decentralized civilization. And this had worked well for us for a long time as well. See, we had great empires like Gupta Empire, but we also had, under these great emperors, we also had Samantarajas, you know, the kings and rulers who were minor in nature. Yes, there, this, this created kind of issue, uh, you know, there was kind of disunity, definitely. Uh, but uh, this decentralization kind of also saved Hindu Dharma. Because I was reading this book, I suggest you to read Sitaram Goel's Hindu, uh, Heroic Hindu Resistance to Muslim Invaders. You see that when one, one king was defeated, the whole country did not become Islamized. You know, in, in, in what happened in Europe, the one of the ruler, the pagan rulers was I think it was Constantine, if I'm not wrong. He was baptized. He became Christian. And then within a few decades, a century or at best, the whole of Europe became Christianized, more or less. Right? This did not happen in India because political power was decentralized. One king was defeated. His son or uncle or somebody started an uprising and he kept fighting. We kept fighting. We never stopped fighting. We only stopped fighting in 1947 when we accepted the partition of India as a, as a permanent fact, which will never be changed for eternity and eternity for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So before that, we never accepted the lost territories as a final thing. Right? So, yes, the, so, but I don't think Mandala theory has anything to do with it per se. Mandala theory is a framework theoretical framework to analyze, to understand and play the global game. Uh, sir, it was very enlightening to listen to you about Vishguru. My question is not about Vishwaguru. My question is about 
India itself, considering that we are fighting a civilizational war, and we are losing. I think right now we are losing because considering the uh, population which is constantly thriving to divide India through thousand cuts, and also taking into consideration the political anesthesia in our country and. Uh, divisiveness of indian society into different castes how gigantic this task is to win our civilization in our very own land and then to think about vishnu guru and what are the fundamental things we can do so that we will win this civilizational war as they mentioned somewhere in the talk that it cannot be this and that i mean it cannot be first we will do this and second we will do that i mean we have to as far as i see it we have to tackle the internal threats as well as external threats together because this we cannot achieve a reversal yes you are right we are currently losing as far as i, I see it as well we cannot uh, reverse our fortunes in a night right it will take many years many decades to do it so we have to uh, put in efforts in both these Uh, issues simultaneously i mean because many of these issues are actually connected consider uh, for example the global islamic network the, the 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 global islamic network is very strong and it funds the islamism in india the 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 the, the monetary backing the trainings and all these things that fund uh, that is happening in india is they are all connected to global uh, things as well and there are global forces which are trying to you know rajiv malhotra ji speaks about breaking india forces right so there are ngos there are uh, christian in uh, evangelists there are uh, so much funding and there are uh, these funders like george soros and omit uh, vr foundations we are uh, waging a a uh, multidimensional multi fronted war so we need to tackle all of them together at one hand there are certain things that only a state can do and on the other hand there are some things that we as individuals can do uh, on the home front what individuals like you and me can do what hindus can do to to survive i have written an article you can search in india facts it is titled agenda for hindu survival what individuals can do it is just a list of suggestions as i see it i see three areas wherein basically uh, we can protect ourselves the three as i called is uh, preserve uh, protect and promote you know preserve our traditions our knowledge traditions our uh, practices festivals protect them from the interventions legal interventions state interventions ngo interventions etc evangelical interventions and then promote authentic practices prevent uh, appropriations etc so each of us have to decide where we fit in i mean i am a writer i use my pen as a weapon to write and uh, my speech as a weapon to speak but somebody else may use art as a weapon somebody else may use politics as weapon it it depends upon each individual and we can all contribute in this way 
so i i, I request you to read that article uh, and then uh, and see what uh, he's right for yeah this i mean uh, uh, what what i thought you know uh, like the, uh, uh, i i expect a disintegration of uh, uh, countries like china pakistan and then simultaneous cultural invasion uh, then we can think of uh, you know uh, uh, armed aggression instead of armed aggression i think cultural uh, uh, aggression uh, stance is uh, much better than uh, you know other concept uh, uh, which is not uh, which is alien to indian context thank you there is nothing alien to indian context uh, uh, territorial aggression or expansion is not alien to indian context i don't know whether you saw the full presentation or not the very point of the presentation was to show that the notion of territorial expansion is not alien to indian civilization it is part of indian civilization it's the vision of indian civilization and we need to embrace that as our vision for going forward so um, uh, i think i think that is the uh, that is the comment i have here i want to ask you that everyone knows as we are the collective commonwealth of communal hindus as we all we can a common pool what you think that everyone knows everything but do you think that we have only 20 years to go because the population of muslims is rising at the pace of the 8% and we are only at the 1.2 so what thing that it how we can uh take this things into the masses we have to work a lot uh we have to train our coming generation with the arms and ammunitions uh, a political agenda is is a one thing cultural uh, upliftment is another thing uh what is should be the procedure and the implementation part of the thoughts what do you think for that so we are facing a very complicated uh, situations and happenings that around us but the good thing is uh, as a society we are also waking up uh, slowly but uh, surely i mean uh, just uh, see uh, in the aftermath of shabrimala uh, judgment how much protest that happened that was something uh, is a game changer you should say in hindu civilization history in the uh, last few decades the point i am trying to make is there are certain things which only state can do and there are certain things uh, there are other things which we can all do in our uh, limited capacity but um, we need to lobby the state we need to lobby the uh, the, the, the political parties at power uh, unfortunately we do not first of all we do not have a lobby system in indian political scenario the way us has but more importantly uh, somehow uh, the hindu cultural issues especially uh, seems to be the, the, the current uh, dispensation is apathetic to hindu cultural issues uh, hindu issues as a whole as uh, in many sense as well uh, so we need to make these issues a, a kind of a election issues election bearing issues uh, we need to uh, create a consensus on all these issues even the demographic issues see awareness is the first step and i think all these things that we are doing including the session um is taking a baby step but one step can lead to a great thing you know uh, every drop counts as they say 
Uh, so, yeah, we all need to do what we can. And I again refer you to my article on Agenda for Hindu Survival, where I have just shared some of my thoughts on what we can do as individuals. Because you said you are in your advocate, you are in a legal field. So uh, from your field, you can you can fight for the Hindu causes in a legal manner, wherein the Hindu issues are being affected, right? And uh, similarly, a writer can do what writing, and somebody else in politics, and somebody else in government, a bureaucrat can do what is in his power. So there are certain things, of course, individuals cannot do. It has to come from the government uh, uh, actions so that we have to push the government to do what we want them. So we need a critical mass uh, which would accomplish this. So that again comes back to the issue that we need to create awareness with whatever means uh, uh, that is available. And I think Sangam talks and platforms like this are doing wonderful work in bringing these issues to the fore.